from runasradio.com, you're listening to Run As Radio, the internet audio talk show for IT professionals with Richard Campbell. This is Brandon Wen announcing show number 526, the delivery pipeline with guest Stephen Morowski, recorded Tuesday, March 28, 2017. Run As Radio is produced each week by Plop Productions, providing professional media and podcasting services online at pwop.com. You can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash runasradio. Thank you, Brandon. This is Richard Campbell, and thanks for listening to Run As Radio, bringing back one of my favorite guests. It's Stephen Murawski, the principal engineer on the community engineering team at Chef and a Microsoft Cloud and Data Center Management MVP. And Steve is active in Chef PowerShell DevOps communities locally and online. And before he was at Chef, he was a Stack Overflow guy and did all kinds of cool stuff there, too. You've been pretty true to yourself, as I understand it, Stephen. You know, you've, you've always focused on how do I make operations work better for the organization. Yeah, that's kind of been a passion of mine. Um, you know, I came into the IT field late, and um, and I learned a lot about it by listening to people in the community, mm -hmm. and uh, both on the Linux side and on the Windows side. And I've always, I've always had this, you know, desire to keep giving back. And as I've gotten more into the, I, I got into PowerShell really early on. And that was a great sharing community as well. And it's just kind of, it's just kind of compounded, right? It's, it still is too. I think it's, it's, it's one of my favorite communities of them all just because it is, is a remarkably positive space. Yes, definitely. And it's made me want to, with my, with, with all the different changes I've had in my career, keep wanting to give back. And I've had a great opportunity to do that here at Chef, uh, working on the community engineering team, because I get to work in the open source space and on things that actually matter to operations professionals. So I'm, I'm very, very fortunate in that regard. In, in some respects, I think Chef, you know, got there before Microsoft did too. You know, you guys have been building in the open source space for quite a while and, and allowing that to be the conduit by which you take feedback and, and information about your products. Yep. Now we do have a, you know, we do have some non-open source stuff. That's our commercial offerings sure. and things, but the core of everything that we build is built on open source. And, um, and, and yeah, we, it, Chef has been there in a little a little bit uh, longer time than the, than the Microsoft space, but you know what? Um, they've also reached out and embraced the Microsoft folks, and so you know, they were, Chef was the first to really uh, third party to really embrace desired state configuration and that approach from Microsoft, and really kind of validate validate that. Yeah, hey, this is a great place for a platform to be, and. That's kind of what drew me to the Chef community was was how quickly they reached out and embraced embraced Microsoft. It was originally a Linux oriented product. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Though though it's had Windows support in varying degrees for for a long time, I think I think it really has taken off with the uh, awareness on the Microsoft community side of things in the operations and development environments of this need for configuration management mm -hmm. and, uh, and desired state configuration definitely brought this to the forefront. You know, uh, there was a lot of people who really didn't grasp there. There were the early adopters who thought, Hey, this is a really good idea. 
But for the most part, we had all, in the Microsoft environment, we had a lot of manual configuration. We still do, right. but we had more so. We also had a lot of scripted environments. And scripted environments offered a lot of benefit because, hey, we could run this script and we could get our environment from stage A to stage B. Mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. hey, that's a great thing. Yeah, and more, more automation is always good because it, it creates repeatability. You know it's going to work every time. Sort of. Right? <laughs> so, so, <laughs> You're such a cynic. <laughs> well, uh, well it, you know, especially in our scripted environments, unless you were building extremely robust uh uh, scripts to move environments from one stage to the next yeah. where it figured out where you currently were and how to get you to the next stage. Yep. You could, you, you did really end up with a lot of how do I get from A to B and what happens if I'm in state C? Right. And then things go badly. Now you're in state D. Yeah. And, and, and then somebody, you know, jumps onto the box to try to figure out what's going on. And now you're in state Z, right? <laughs> <laughs> and, it, and it works. And so people leave it alone. Yeah. Yeah. But it's a battle every time. You know, I've got 17 boxes in state C and one box in, de- in state Z. Yeah. And now I try to move everything. And, and, and so we have this, you know, kind of, uh, you know, these, this non-repeatable while we're trying to be repeatable. Right. And right. configuration management kind of takes that approach. But rather than saying, okay, hey, I want to go from state A to state B, I just want, I just want to describe state B. And regardless, you know, regardless of how I am uh, now, it's the configuration management tools to get you there. They're not always going to succeed because it's code. People have written it. It's not going to accommodate every single scenario. Sure. But it gives us a starting point, yeah. right? And and we can improve it. We can make it more robust over time. Um, but it's also a little easier to reason about rather than, okay, I have a bunch of servers that I think are in state C, but one's in state Z. But I think they're all in state C because everything's working. Where with configuration management, I can take a look at the policies that are being applied and I can say, I can take a look at my, my logging data or whatever that's going to tell me, Hey, yeah, everything does match up. And it then doesn't, I can doesn't say, ultimately okay, DSC spit out a kind of CRC that says, yes, this is a correct configuration. Yep. And so in, in like desired state configuration, you can do test DSC configuration. Mm-hmm. And, uh, in, in version five and five one, you can actually point it to, uh, 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 configuration and, and say, hey, test against this thing and tell me if you're that. Um, so you can do some kind of, some kind of cool stuff there. Um, all, all the configuration management tools offer, you know, uh, this kind of capability where, hey, am I in, am I in my desired state or am I not? Right. Uh, with different levels of granularity. And so that, that gives you a lot better ability to reason about the state of your systems. And all right, if, if we want to make a change, What's that going to look like on these boxes? And if I want to spin up a dev environment that looks exactly like production, you know, and, and we've talked about this before about mm-hmm. how, how we we get this more consistent build environment, we get this more consistent environment for our uh, for the systems that we're going to run software on. But that's the environment where we run software. Right. It's not necessarily the software itself. No, and and where configuration management starts to get a little painful is when we try to start managing. You know, uh, imagine our applications themselves. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you're, you're talking about automating, pathing to different resources, that sort of thing? I'm talking about like, hey, I want to I want to install Exchange. Oh. And run Exchange. Mm-hmm. Right. Let's take desired state configuration, for example. Right. There was a, a really good talk. I think it's out on YouTube uh, by a Microsoft Premier Field engineer about how he built some DSC configs to 
a unified exchange management at uh, some of the customers he worked with. And he had five different sets of configurations that he had to go through in a, in a particular workflow to get those to get those exchange servers to being where they need to be. Wow. And so we, we went from taking DSC to be this declarative, this is the state of my system, to it's a, it's a couple of steps of workflow that we had to go through to get there. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's because of how the exchange application behaves. Right. And so applications, especially, especially applications that can span multiple systems, or you need to have some kind of coordination or, or orchestration between what happens on nodes. That can be a, a that can be really painful to describe in configuration management. Sure, because configuration management's this convergent model. Like, hey, a, a, and it really mostly cares about what's on the particular node. You can get some information about about your environment, but it mostly cares about what's happening on that node, mm-hmm. and it's going to try to get you to that desired state. If it doesn't work, that's going to try again in a, in a little while, and. A lot of applications are much more order sensitive. No, it all has to work. Right. And so, you know, if you're upgrading Exchange, you have to do, you know, you upgrade your front ends first, then you upgrade your back ends or, you know, depending on the versions, sometimes they flip that around on you. Um, You know, if if you have an internal application, you usually, uh, usually your internal applications they don't like when their database isn't there. Mm-hmm. So, or that your database database schema isn't the right one yet. Uh, so you usually have an order. Like I have to upgrade my database schema. Then I have to upgrade my, my application or my middle tier and then my application. So there's usually some order that you have to follow for these things. So you have to coordinate across multiple machines and you can make configuration management tools do this, mm-hmm. but it hurts. It's not, it's, it's not it's, what they're intended for. Correct. And, <laughs> it, and yeah, and one answer could be, okay, go rewrite the world and write, <laughs> rewrite all the software to deal with this, um, uh, this, you know, promise theory or this convergence of where, you know, hey, if I'm not in the right state, maybe I'll be there in 20 minutes. Right. And so I'll just error cleanly exit and wait till, wait till things, uh, maybe I'll throw up a, an error page, like getting ready or something. And, and I won't start crying all over that things aren't right. Yeah, I'm not just going to give up and pop a dialogue and bye-bye. I'm just going to right. go away. Maybe whatever's upsetting it right now will will pass and I can continue. And, but that's not that's not a good answer. That's not an answer that we can give to everybody, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. You, you you can't go rewrite the world. Um and it, it's so it's not going to happen. So people end up building these kind of really painful multi-step processes trying to uh trying to, you know, sh- shove this workflow into uh, a declarative model. Right. And, and so then we look at other tools like orchestration. And, and so now we need to have this, for our application, we have to have this dependency on this outside system that's going to be, you know, the all-seeing eye watching what's happening in the environment. And all right, we want to upgrade application A. So first thing we're going to do is stop application A on uh, on our web tier. Then we're going to stop their middle service. Then we're going to stop the database, upgrade the database, bring everything back up in the right order. Right. No problem. Yep. No problems. <laughs> no problems there until until the next version of the application changes the. St- order in which you have to do something yes. or there's a config option that gets missed or 
uh, oh, hey, guess what? Our automation forgot to force our config management to run. So the new application values didn't get updated right. right. Or the load balancer doesn't match the new web tiers mm-hmm. IPs because we brought these machines down. They came back up. They got new DHCP. There's, there's all sorts of potential for, for problems. And so then you start looking at uh, like service discovery kind of capabilities. Right. Let's make fewer decisions up front to let it find its way. Now, maybe it has a DNS record or you're using something like etcd or console some, some, or some sort of a key value store that things are going to query so it can go out and find everything. Mm-hmm. Well, now you have to make all your applications aware of this particular right. thing. You're back to fixing the world, really. Exactly. <laughs> and now, you know, nowadays, too, we have everybody's talking about containers. Yes. And, and containers are almost a problem kind of alongside of this whole discussion where we're talking about, you know, how do we, how do we, you know, manage our applications because containers are just another way to ship that application. Yep. And, 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 you know, people get hung up on, on containers. Uh, Now containers, don't get me wrong. I love containers. Containers are a great idea. Mm -hmm. They have a lot of great use cases, right? They also have a lot of challenges. Hmm. All of the challenges that we just described, still apply to containers, right? It, the, you know, containers are not going to save you from your configuration problems is what you're saying. Right. Because now we have, so uh, let's, let's take one of the favorite words people use around containers, immutable. Right. Right. So with an immutable container, if I take my current application, drop it in a container mm-hmm. and ship it, immutable wants me to say, I'm not going to make any changes to that container. Yes. Right. So now I'm, I, I'm forced to rely on that outside key value store or some other outside method of configuration because I can't change anything inside my container. Well, and it's not that you can't, it's that it won't be saved. Right. Right. You still, your program's still your program and it can change things. But if you do, you're, you're probably going to be sad when the next update comes around. Right, but but if if my if my application can change things in the container, yes. I'm no longer immutable, and right. so how do I know what the state of my container is? Right, and, and, and the point I, being that immutab- immutability is not something intrinsic to containers. Containers won't stop you from doing it. It's really a policy thing. Don't do this. Yep, and, and so really, what people are using containers more for is isolation, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So uh, Datadog actually just released a study that they did um, or the results of a, a survey that they did about people who are using containers in production and things like that. And what it, the, the feel that you get from that is that containers are being used primarily as lightweight virtualization. Sure, which is an easy way to understand them too. It's not a, it's not a bad description. It's just not the whole deal. Yeah, and a lot of container people will get upset about that description, mm-hmm. and, and that's okay. I I understand. You like making people angry? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> yeah, it, you know it happens <laughs> from time to time. But but that but that's I, I mean so you know containers don't take away your infrastructure problems. Right. They're just a different infrastructure yeah. problem. No, you can have, and, you can in some ways because they're lighter weight. You just can fail faster. You yes, you can. <laughs> um, but you still have you still have all of the challenges of you know. Uh, of all of that other problem. How do I get my configuration to my applications? How do I, you know, how do I configure those particular environments? Mm -hmm. And we haven't even gotten into security, right? How do I know that those containers are not running vulnerable software? Right. And, 
And so all of these challenges, you know, kind of come from the perspective of we look at managing applications like we look at managing infrastructure. Right. And because it's the ops guys typically who are running the software. And so they look at it from an ops perspective, right? Which is, which is natural. Sure. But I don't think we can take that approach with managing our applications. I don't think that we can take that approach because it doesn't really fit. And so there are a few other, you know, there are a few other efforts out there in the ecosystem around managing applications and doing this kind of thing. Well, um, Habitat from Chef, of course, is one of them. Mm-hmm. But there's there's some other efforts, um, and there are things like Nix, uh, which is a different packaging format, and um, and there's a uh, another container runtime uh, that's very focused on, on operating stuff as containers. Yep. But but we really need to look at managing applications with a, with a little different lens than we have been. Uh, and that is, you know, what does an application take to run well? It's all these things we've been talking about. We need to find our configuration, Excellent. but we need to be in a in kind of a dynamic way. We need to be able to find our dependencies, at like our database layer, things like that. We need to be able to coordinate between these things, but we need to be able to do this stuff in a way that doesn't require us to rewrite the world. I like that. Stephen, give me one second here to pay the bills because this episode of Run As Radio is brought to you by IT Edge Intersection. IT is transforming and the techniques and tools you've used in the past decade or more are less relevant. It's all changing. Cloud services are a reality. Automation is penetrating all aspects of operations and software is being delivered faster than ever. It's no longer a safe bet to just sit and be doing what you've been doing, but there's no reason to panic. The experts at IT Edge Intersection are here to help you understand how to use these technologies, new approaches, and new techniques, all with a real-world focus that acknowledges the realities you face every day. Make your job easier and up your value to your organization by attending IT Edge Intersection in Orlando, May 21st to 24th, and you can use the code RUNAS to get a discount on your registration at itedgeintersection.com, and we will see you there. That's right, because I'll be there too. And I hope you'll be talking about this exact subject, because it feels like we are coming to an inflection point in the way we man- ship and manage software, and containers obviously role to it. But I, I don't want to interrupt your narrative to that because I think it's important. It's like this is new kinds of tooling to sort of round out the fact that our platforms have changed. Right, and and, and this is really kind of front of mind, uh, and and I will be talking about this stuff at I, at IT uh, intersection. So, mm-hmm. so uh, <laughs> yes, definitely, and so. The, uh, you know, this is becoming really, really important to, con- to consider because in large part, containers are driving this conversation. Right. And, you know, containers are the, are the hot thing. There's a lot of enterprise adoption of containers. Mm-hmm. And, and on the Windows side, you hear a whole lot about Windows containers, right? Yep. And the, the challenge we have to, you know, remember is this isn't a panacea. It doesn't solve everything. It, it, we still have the same problems, but now we have to approach them a little bit differently. Mm-hmm. Because if we're talking about we're going to package up all our configuration in a container and ship that artifact, what is going to put that artifact into our production environments? What is going to help that that production artifact find its dependencies, find its peers, mm-hmm. 
some people may say, oh, hey, you need to change your configuration of your container, build a new container, ship that thing. Right. Okay, great. Um, how does that help me when I want to toggle a feature flag while things are running in production? Yeah, you can't just keep reshipping containers, or can you? Potentially, you could. Uh, it depends on how solid your your ability to ship new containers is. If yeah. you're still back in this, you know, one-off, you know, I have a script to deploy things, or I'm in the manual clicky clicky stage of of IT operations, containers are going to crush you. Right. Right. If I if I need to if every single change is being shipped as a new container that needs to get put into production and that then to put something into production might be we go through you know three or four different environments first. That's a lot, especially well, especially if you're just talking about an A B test where I just want to run two instances or two sets of instances of these containers with slightly different behavior. Is it better to have one set that literally have a configuration switch inside them or or two completely different sets and and you know A B test by network. And, and at the end of the day, that can end up being a just a, a culture choice or, yeah. or just a, a preference mm-hmm. if you if you have the ability to deliver that change. But yeah. if if you know from the IT ops perspective, if we don't change how we look at these things and we don't look at it like, hey, we need to be able to consistently deliver change regardless of what that thing is, regardless of what that artifact is, mm-hmm. whether it's an MSI, whether it's a container whether it's, you know, uh, a NuGet package, all of those, all of those things, they're all different packages of software. Sure. They all have the same challenge of how do I get into production and then how do I, how do I get it configured so that it can do the things it needs to do? It seems to me this is slightly different points of, of control here. Like if in that scenario of the AB container, that's much more operations driven where operations are deciding what the load is going to be between A and B, and most likely the ones watching the instruments too, and can decide, hey, B's got a problem, make sure we only use A's for now until we can figure out what's next. As opposed to a more code-driven approach, where it's it's the code within the container that knows where it's running A or B, and probably has a different feedback mechanism that other people can watch. Right, and, and so that, and in those case, in both of those cases, we have you know scenarios where we control the code. Mm-hmm. Right. And so we control, you know, maybe the controls are at our at our load balancer. Maybe those controls are in the software itself. Right. Well, the software itself, I know I need the developer involved. If it's just a configuration setting on a container, ops could run this whole thing if we can go that approach. Definitely. And, you know, but if we don't have the ability to get those new containers, regardless of whether that all everything's all in one or whether they're both there. Yeah. Out into out into a production environment and change and change that deployment scenario. Like, hey, if we say we're doing the separate containers for the AB test, and B is failing mm-hmm. hard, and we want to do all A, how do I replace B with A so A has enough to take the load? Yeah, it's got to be completely Correct. automated. I I got to be able to issue a couple of commands, more A's light up and get added to the pool, right? While the B's and, wound down. And we, Yep, exactly. And we, we have that same problem though with, you know, with package software mm-hmm. or with if I'm shipping, you know, full machine images, if I have a golden image yep. or, uh, you know, in, in uh, a template in Azure or, you know, an AMI or whatever, whatever that unit of deployment is, I have to be able to get that unit of deployment out into production and get it configured. And config management might be the solution. It might not be the solution. We have to we have to be willing, you know, 
you have things out there for like for container management, like Kubernetes, right? Yep. And now you replaced, uh, you, you know, Kubernetes then allows you to, you know, it, it has methods for distributing configuration information and things like that. But now that's your management challenge. Yep. Right. It, 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 we're just moving the, we're not changing any of these problems. We're just moving them around. And so, you know, one, one thing that I think that IT pros in our community really need to be aware of and really need to be looking at is, all right, when the, when the, you know, word comes down that, Hey, we're going to change our, our shipping to containers or, Hey, we're going to start leveraging config management or, Hey, we're going to be using Octopus deploy and deploy everything as, as these packages. What, what work is being moved around? Mm -hmm. What responsibilities need to be handled? Right. And, and, and let, let's make the, let's make those explicit. Sure. Right. And so one of the things that I like about what's happening in the habitat ecosystem mm -hmm. is a, a lot of those dependencies, uh, both in terms of, you know, what software your software needs to run and what external dependencies like, Hey, uh, I'm going to run Kibana. So I need Elasticsearch. Right. Or, Hey, I'm going to run this .NET application. So I need a SQL server. Mm -hmm. Those are defined in package metadata nice and you need them to start the thing up and so you know making making those kind of uh constraints and the you know that kind of information available to operations can be inv invaluable so to the right? point where you go to deploy this app and it says i'm not going to even start now because i can't see a sql server where where is that as opposed to what would typically happen which is you fully deploy the software and then when you go to run it it fails with some weird error Right. And it's like, okay, what, what, yeah, what did what we miss? Just happened. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, so there, there are, there are a number of different, you know, uh, and each snare, every enterprise, every, every snare is going to be slightly different, mm -hmm. but we all have these same core challenges. And, you know, so, so I, I'm hearing some environments, you know, Hey, the words come down, we're going to deploy everything as containers or, Hey, you know, words come down. It's chef for everything. Hey, you know, it, it, we have to understand that with all of these different approaches, there will be some pain and there, and we have to identify where those edge cases are and maybe a different technology or right. maybe a different approach for that particular, uh, that particular point of our management needs to be considered. And it, you know, so much of the stuff is just, you know, coming up and changing on a very, very fast basis. Uh, it, there's a lot for IT pros to keep track of here. Sure. Right. But it, and, and I, I also appreciate the idea that you're making sure we're defining these roles because often in, in these more elastic and dynamic environments, like who watches the monitoring? You know, who's responsible for that? What are our metrics? How do we see that this thing is healthy or not? I just find that an awful lot of software, especially people just getting started in this space, their only feedback that something's failing is a tech support call. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or that the application failed to start or that you're throwing 500 errors or something like that. If you're even seeing those. Yeah. Right. And yeah. So, you know, in, in these type of environments, if you expect to RDP into a container, um, yeah. you probably, you're probably not ready to deploy containers. Yeah. You're about to have some bad news, but you know, and another side to that is this idea that a B testing, which involves deployment means deployment's got to be self-service. Because generally yes. speaking, my, my most organizations I've dealt with, deployment's handled by one or two wizards. And, mm -hmm. and, and you have to, to stand before the wizard to have anything deployed. 
So the idea that we would do this rapid fire several times a day to do a series of different kinds of tests, you know, maybe that's your linchpin, right? Is do I have an organization tolerant to rapid fire deployment or is it easier for me to, to work with developers to do the A-B testing on that side so that I don't have to have rapid fire deployment? Well, I, so here's here's the challenge from from my perspective. You need to have rapid fire deployment. You might not. You might, or or actually, you need to have the capability to have rapid fire deployment. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right? If, if I can't deploy changes on demand, yeah, I have problems in my infrastructure. Right, and, and the, the, because we all do it, regardless of what kind of what kind of packaging, what kind of infrastructure we're running. Uh, you know, even if you have those two guys who are the wizard wizards at deployment, guess what? When something fails in production mm-hmm. and you have to deploy that hotfix out there without going through all the different levels of uh, validation and things like that, it happens. Sure. And and it's better to it, uh, it, it's better to have a standard deployment process that you can get things out into production with as few steps as possible. So right. as easy as possible to the point where it's self-service, yeah. where we need to get a fix out or uh, a code change is a code change is a code change or a new version is a new version is a new version. And when you say it, a few it, steps, are you really talking about fewer human interventions? Yes. Right. So it could be many, many steps, but just make them automated. I'm all well, about a consistent pipeline that we always test everything, but only if we can go fast enough. You know, I, I've got it. I got... M- a company to move their testing into the cloud so that because our we decided that the maximum amount of time we wanted to spend on testing was 15 minutes, but we still wanted to run 10,000 tests. And it turns out with the cloud, you can run 10,000 tests in 15 minutes. You just light up a hundred instances of the app. Yep. And, and that is, that is totally it. Right. And so I'm, I, maybe I need to, you know, and it, when you say like 15 minutes, right. Yep. That's a, that's a very, uh, that's a very, it seems like a very short time. It's a very short time. You know what it was measured on? How what? long it takes a developer to get coffee. <laughs> so the, the insight so was that the moment a develop it, when the developer pushes this code, he's going to go get coffee. And if he gets back to the desk with his coffee and there's no, no messages, he's going to start working on something else. And every moment that goes by, he forgets what he worked on before. So if you can get the error messages back to him before he gets back to his desk he still remembers the code and the fix times are super short. And now, so here, here's the thing, right? Um, 15 minutes. If you're a developer waiting for your change to get into production or get into an environment where you can test it or something like that, that is an eternity. (laughs) But from an ops point of view, you're saying 15 minutes. Are you crazy? Right. And and so having the, having the pipeline in place where you can, you can tune it to get to those kind of times. Yeah. or whether they're shorter, whether they're fast, whether they're, they're a little bit longer. Um, but what, when you have that, depo- when you have that pipeline to, to be able to, you know, make that change within the specified time window. Now you can say, okay, if we have a critical problem, our time to remediate is time to find and isolate the problem plus 15 minutes. Right. Right. And so you have, you have, you have some numbers around that. You have some ability around that. I might not change my environment every 15 minutes. No, but I could. But every 15 minutes, I can. Yeah. And, and, that's a, and, that's, and now it's a superpower. Right. And, and But that is that is the IT ops superpower for mm-hmm. deployment. And that is where we get out of 
you know, I'm, it's a firefight to deploy new software. And when there's a problem, it's a firefight. When there's a problem, I know I can get, if I can get, if I know I can get changes out in a specified period of time. And, and maybe if I have to rush things, I can turn off some of the tests, right? You know, maybe I have a flag to say, Hey, this is an, uh, an emergency fix and maybe we'll get out in five minutes. That's it, still a lot faster than people going and doing a bunch of stuff manually sure. that you, that you're going to spend three weeks unwinding later. Well, the nice thing about 15 minutes is that that was fast enough that it's like, there simply can be no human intercept points on this. When the code gets pushed, it gets all the way to a completed build ready for deployment. And that's the first time a human can touch it. Everything else has been done automatically. So if there's any errors in that stack, it goes back to the dev. But I I mean, I just appreciate that the, and and this is not a QA show, but the whammy in what we just said is QA. Yeah. Right. And that, you know, the automation around QA is simply not optional when you talk about this scale and confident. You know, the interesting thing about QA from an operations perspective, you have to believe when QA hands you a piece of code says this is good to go, that it's good to go. Well, and, and it depends too on what, what QA is actually testing. Mm-hmm. Right? Are they testing the application from a user perspective? Mm-hmm. Are they also testing the manageability of the application? Yep. My guess is most QA departments are not testing the manageability. Well, and it's tolerance to load. It's scalability. Like, there's lots of things that can be tested there. And when you're talking, looking at someone who's going to put this out into the wild, who's going to take tech support calls on it, you better be able to answer a bunch of questions. Yeah. So, you know, at, at the end of the day, my, my kind of call to action for, you know, for IT professionals and stuff it is really around... You need to understand this stuff. You need to mm-hmm. understand what these build pipelines look like, what it looks like to be able to deliver production artifacts into, you know, in a fully automated fashion, you know, and, th- and, and this is going to become the linchpin of whether you're working with containers, whether you're working with config management, whether you're working with something like Octopus Deploy, whether you work, whatever those things look like, mm-hmm. the delivery pipeline for that is the linchpin. That's what it's and, all about. And that's what, that is what's going to deliver success for your IT ops organization. That said, you still need to get familiar with what these other things are because they play differently into your delivery pipeline. Absolutely. Hey, Stephen, always fun to talk to you, sir. Great to, to just sort of focus in on the pipeline aspects and go fast. Oh, it's a pleasure. I love talking about this stuff. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and uh, got to come back more often, my friend. And once a year may not be enough. We can, I think we can make that happen. I'll find a way. <laughs> uh, so, Stephen, thank you so much for talking to us, and we'll talk to you next week on Run As Radio. 